Welcome to my podcast, Living with Ovarian Cancer. My name is Diane Evans-Wood and I'm one of many women who are living with ovarian cancer. I want to give women like me a voice to share with you what it's like to live with ovarian cancer. We will cover a whole range of aspects related to diagnosis, treatment, recurrence and well, just about everything in between. I hope you find our honest, candid but often humorous conversations not only useful but also uplifting. So without further ado, settle down and listen to my conversation today. Welcome to episode 9. Today I'm very honoured to be talking to Tamara Campbell, who's kindly agreed to talk to me about what it's like from her perspective to be living with ovarian cancer. So welcome, welcome Tamara. Thank you so much for having me. This is lovely. I'm very honoured, it's a privilege for me. So how are you doing at the moment? Actually surprisingly well. You know, I'm... I'm suffering a bit from the fatigue. I'm getting quite a lot of insomnia. So obviously I'm just getting back to that, you know, that normal everyday life now and trying my best to get into some kind of rhythm. And that's proving harder than anything else this current year. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, of course, we're still very restricted with the COVID restrictions at the moment, which in the future, when people listen back to these podcasts, will wonder what on earth we're talking about <laughs> become a distant memory but of course we're living through it and it'll be in our memories absolutely yeah. Tamara tell me a little bit about you what makes you you well the one thing that really stands out I li- I've been living in Scotland for nearly 15 years but I'm one of the only Australians in this area um, so that's the, usually the first thing that really hits people when they meet me. They're like, oh, you're Australian. And they might have been talking to me by text or Facebook for, you know, months on end. So, and, and half the time I actually forget about that. But being an Australian actually makes me who I am because mm-hmm. I think Aussies come with a set of core values that are inherited from birth in the country. And, you know, like the, you're very down to earth, you're approachable, you're friendly, you can talk about anything. And, you know, something they always say, you can talk for Scotland. <laughs> <laughs> so that's, that's very true about me as well. And I was really fortunate to actually grow up in kind of a country environment. So, you know, I have all of those country values to heart as well. You know, so we had, you know, chickens in the backyard and we had an outdoor toilet and, all those kind of funny, quirky things that people identify with being an Australian. Oh, that's wonderful. Whereabouts in Australia then were you living as a child? Well, it kind of went all over. Um, I started off, I was born in Western Australia in a little whaling town called Albany. And then we went to Perth for a wee while and left there when I was seven and moved to New South Wales. Mm-hmm. So we were one of those families. We were kind of no, but nomads and we moved around an awful lot. So I was kind of going back over my history at one stage there a couple of years back. And I mean, we must have had at least 15 different houses growing up with my mum. And I don't ever remember owning a single house. You know, I don't remember any of them being ours. We were always renting or we were always living with someone else, you know, whether that was family or, and unfortunately that is now part of my DNA 
So I'm as much as I'm trying not to be my own mother, every couple of years I get the urge to move house here in Scotland. So since I've actually moved over here, I've probably been in about seven or eight different properties in 15 years. Right. And I don't know what it is that drives me to do that. I don't know if that's because I always have the urge to try something new or I get bored where I am and I just need a change of environment, a change of scene. But, yeah, it's really quite interesting, to be honest. My, my children are, are kind of cross with me, though, because they're, in, they're, they're totally sick of it now. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> oh. So what brought you to Scotland then? It's kind of a long story, but I met a fellow from Scot- Scotland back in 19, 1998, and he was over there on a one-year work visa. So we met probably in the first five months that he arrived we met just by chance one night at the Coogee Bay Hotel in Sydney and it was one of those moments where I I was about to no he was about to leave for the night and he was waiting at the bus stop because his mates hadn't shown up and they were traveling with him and by chance they showed up just as he was about to step onto the bus so he turned around and went back into the pub again so if he'd actually gotten on that bus, I would never have met him. Oh, um, meant to be. <laughs> yeah, it really was meant to be. But, you know, it's one of those kind of stories where I don't think we were the right fit for each other at the same time as well. And he was kind of like a fish out of water because living in Australia is very different to living in Scotland. And I think that once the novelty originally wore off for him, he was just really homesick. And when he wanted to go home and be back with his family and his friends here. So the time came, we were married for seven years and we we bought a we bought three houses in Australia. We lived in one of them. We were doing extremely well, working seven days a week when I got pregnant with my first daughter. And then I had my second daughter a year after that, and she ended up having head surgery. Out of you know, she was only, I think, one year and one month of age. So that put a lot of stress on the relationship. And I think we just we didn't come together as as a part a partnership, uh, and we just fell apart from there. So when we decided to get divorced, you know, seven years we've been together seven years, you know, so seven year each. Mm-hmm. Maybe there's some truth to it. I don't know. Uh, we had to decide where we were going to raise the children and we had to decide whether that was going to be Scotland or Australia. And in Australia, I mean, I really only had two close family members left at the time. That was my mum and my sister mm-hmm. and they both lived seven hours drive away in Wagga Wagga um, and we would see them maybe once or twice a year and I was really close to them but that support network wasn't there for us. Mm. So we decided to, to move to Scotland and that was in 2006. So I've been here ever since. Gosh. Um, yeah, That's so a big I, move for you. You know, at the time I was just really excited to be doing something new mm. and we had to sell the houses. We sold absolutely everything that we owned. We just sent stuff over in crates by by sea you know that took three or four months to to get over here to the UK and I just saw it as a new experience I mean I was just really excited and I had two young babies at that stage you know they were one and three years old and 
John's parents had been over quite a few times to stay with us and they were very close to him and very close to, you know, the children and they were actually an amazing family. So we were getting all these videos from Scotland and there's, it's all this massive family. They all live kind of like five, ten miles within, you know, mm. of each other and I just felt like my girls were missing out on that kind of family, that big extended family. I thought they needed that to grow up with. So I didn't hesitate, to be honest. I just kind of, when we when we sort of really sat down, talked about things, I just said, you know, I want to move to Scotland. You know, and, and it wasn't a choice. I, I really just told him that's what I wanted to do. And I'd already been thinking about it for a good year before we decided to get divorced. And I knew that would be the best idea for the children. Yeah. Yeah. Gosh, that's an amazing story. Yeah, really it was well some... settled there now. What are your yeah, girls are. doing now? Actually, my girls are flourishing. You know, they really are. Uh, I know now, having been diagnosed with cancer, I made the right decision. Yeah. You know, and it, it, I kind of always in the back of my mind, I always knew I would get cancer someday. And I know that feel, sounds really strange, but every woman in my can in my family has had cancer. So with that in mind, that was part of the decision that I made to come over here. I knew there would be a day where I would need to rely on them for help with something. Yeah. And I wanted that support network in place for myself and for my children so that they could cope no matter what happened to me. Yeah, that was what really important. Predicted. What you predicted and what you thought was going to happen did come to fruition then and you're counting your blessings that you've got some really good support for yourself yeah. and your girls. Yeah, you know, it's it's interesting though because you'll know yourself when you when you're diagnosed with cancer, some people take it really well and others don't. And some people agree with your treatment plan and some are dead against it. And I've got some friends back in Australia that thought that having chemotherapy was a really bad idea for me. And I'll go into that with you separately, but mm. they kind of thought that because they, they they were almost of the mind that I had given myself the cancer by like almost like a self-fulfilling prophecy. Mm. You know, and that did make me wonder, to be honest, you know, I obviously had some kind of predisposition position to it in my family but mm. it does make you wonder because at mm. the end of the day I still don't know why I, why I got it I had a test when I back when I was 25 and I was living back in Sydney at the time and I had an ultrasound and some photos taken and one of my ovaries was much bigger than the other one and they thought that I had an ovarian, can, uh, sorry, an ovarian tumor even back then. And so I had three months of stress and waiting. And when they eventually investigated it further, they actually decided that there was nothing there. So I never kept those photos. And obviously, you move on with your life, and you think, oh well, that's that. You know, there's nothing wrong with me. And it wasn't until I got diagnosed with ovarian cancer, and I, I remembered that this happened to me and I thought, gee, I wonder if I've had something there this entire 25 years. 
Yeah. You know, and it's just been really slow growing. And at the time they said to me that the ovary was large because it was part of my menstruation cycle at that time that I had the photos taken. And I just thought that was really strange, but I never mm. thought anything more of it. No, no. And of course, I don't know. I suppose you could find out. They went back into the archives, but well, how, how useful that would be, I really don't know. No, not at all. But, you know, it was very interesting because that's one of the only things that's been flagged up about my health this entire time. Did any of your family, the, the women in your family, have ovarian cancer or breast cancer? Not ovarian. They did have breast. So my mum had been diagnosed with breast cancer when she was in her early 50s. So she battled against that for 20, 24, nearly 25 years, you know, and she originally, she had a mastectomy. And they found some lumps under her arm. So they removed those as well. And then she obviously had the chemo treatment and she had to travel like 200 miles each way to get that in Newcastle because we were living in kind of a small town out in the middle of nowhere in those days. And she was okay for quite a while. And then she decided to have a second mastectomy. Mm. And she didn't like the way that she looked. She tried all the different bras. She, she was very uncomfortable wearing them. And I think that having the second mastectomy, she was she was that much older at that stage. And I don't think that having the surgery did her any good because she was close to 60 at that stage. And I just think it was too much for her body after everything she'd been through. So I kind of thought that was really radical at the time. Mm. her mother my nan had had bowel cancer my mum's sister had had bowel cancer my personal father he had leukemia so blood cancer his sister had lung cancer uh, his mum died from anemia so she didn't have cancer at all but it certainly goes back even further on my mum's side because her grandmother had stomach cancer and one of her aunts, like mm. her her mum's sister, had breast cancer as well. So, you know, there's massive history there and we don't know any further back than that no. because the family originally, my dad's side, they all came from England, from Essex. Oh, bless you. Yeah, I'm so, sorry um, that you've had all of that in your family. That's that's mm. a lot, really. But thank you for sharing it with me. Well, you know what's interesting is that I've had the genetic testing, and there's absolutely nothing there. No, nothing there in our not, DNA. Not even did they do the test for what they call Lynch syndrome? Possibly, I don't know if it had been part of that. But you know, that's certainly never come up in my family in any diagnosis before. Mm. We've none of us have ever heard of it. Yeah, so there you go. There's no rhyme or reason, I think, to this, to, to be honest. No, no. It, you can rack your brains, but, you know, at the end of the day, it doesn't change anything. It is what it is and what you have now. Yeah. Um, was a diagnosis of ovarian cancer. Yeah, it doesn't change the diagnosis at all, you know. No. So we, if we move on to talk about, you and your story with ovarian cancer 
what made you go to the GP? We're really looking at your symptoms and mm-hmm. what was going wrong for you? What made you go to the GP? Well, back in 2014, I was going through a lot of stress and I, out of nowhere, I started getting migraines, which I'd never had in my entire life before. And then as a result of the medication, because I was using ibuprofen a lot, I started getting IBS. So I've been on omeprazole for like eight years. And I always just put it down to, you know, diet, lifestyle, and I'd had IBS all those years and nothing untowards whatsoever with my periods. I mean, they're always on time. They, the, the, the rhythm never changed but what did start happening is I was getting up four and five times a night to go to the toilet. And that was three years ago. And the doctor, you know, he tested me, my thyroids and he tested me for diabetes and everything else. And nothing came back. You know, nothing was abnormal. By all accounts, I seemed quite healthy. They never did a CA125 test though. And I did have bloods and they were all fine as well. So I then changed doctors and a couple of years, you know, after having all those tests, I started to get really heavy periods, unbelievably heavy. And I'd never really had that before since I was a young girl. So I thought that was really quite strange. But I thought that that was my body winding down and going into menopause. I thought my periods were ending. I thought that's what would happen. And then one night in November, November 2019, I was lying in my bed and I was feeling my tummy because I just felt there was something there. I could feel this humongous lump right in the middle where my womb would have been. Mm. And it was really huge and really hard. And I thought, oh, my God, there's something there. That was alarming. Well, what had happened is I'd had a job for two years and they had been providing private health insurance. So I was just about to go off and organise an appointment with one of the specialists through that program and then they cancelled my private health insurance and told me that I'd only be getting it as a mistake you know, when I'd started with the company and I wasn't actually entitled to it because it wasn't on my work contract. And I was floored by that, to be honest. So I didn't pursue it any further. And my daughter was having problems with her own mental health. And to be honest, she was having eating problems and, and had lost a lot of confidence because she was being bullied at school. So I kind of dealt with all that and, you know, got got counselling for her organised and certainly someone to help her over the Christmas New Year period. So it wasn't until my mother became really ill at the same time. She was stage four breast cancer, but by then it had gone into her liver and her the back of her neck had gone into her hip um, and other organs that she just wouldn't talk to me about and she was really in palliative care and she was in Australia and for six months I'd been wanting to go over and visit her and I kept saying to her look I think I should come now and she's like no no I'm okay don't worry about it you know it's not important and just you stay there with the children and you know live your life kind of thing so 
I didn't really think she was as serious as, you know, as, as what I thought. And then obviously the, the things around lockdown started surfacing and I wanted to go in the February and literally she died on the 29th of February. Mm. So I didn't make it. And that was hard. Oh, yeah. Oh, that was so, so hard for you. But then you went by what she was telling you. She didn't want you to be worried. No, she, no, she didn't. I think she didn't want me to see her in that state. No, no. Such a difficult time. And there's so much uncertainty at that time, you know, wasn't there? And must have been incredibly stressful for you. Um, I wanted to see her, but... At the same time, I didn't feel well enough to fly. Mm. And I knew something was wrong with me. You know, I just knew I wouldn't make it. And what was happening is having wee turns, which would come out of nowhere as well, like all of a sudden I'd break out into this unbelievably heavy sweat and, and my fever would go through the roof. Mm. I'd just be, and I, and I would be so sick and my tummy would literally go into spasm. And that could last for anything from half an hour to an hour at a time. So, and this would happen randomly just wherever. And I couldn't pinpoint the cause of that. So I was actually terrified to get on a plane in case that happened because when it did happen, it was absolute agony as well. Like I'd be writhing around in pain and all I could do when things like that happened was to go and lie on my bed and take Panadol which is the only thing that really eventually stopped those symptoms. And I didn't really know what was going on. And it happened one day when I was at work just before mum died. And what happened is I I was in the office on my own and all the doors were locked so no one could get in anyway. And I started hyperventilating and I couldn't breathe. So what what I think actually happened is I could, that I think that was a massive panic attack, and all like I mean I was immobilized and all I could do was sit there in my chair. I couldn't even reach over to pick the phone up to ring somebody for help, you know, because they were literally two minutes away in the in the shopping centre where I work. So by some miracle, my boss actually walked in at that moment. And I mean, he often worked away for days at a time and he knew there was something wrong with me straight away. And he walked up to me, he's like, Tamara, you're bright red, what's wrong? And I was like, I think I'm having a panic attack. I I need help. So he called a woman, one of the cleaners from the the floor to come and sit with me. And I just, as, as soon as I got my breath back, I just burst into tears and I kind of told her about what was happening with my mum, but I think it was just, it just all became overwhelming Mm. and um, they had to drive me home, you know, and and one of them brought my car back for me. So, and that was literally just a few weeks before mum died. So I felt as soon as she was gone, I knew it was coming and I knew it was that night. And she was obviously in the hospital, but my sister was there. 
and I was out to dinner with friends that night and I knew it was happening in a, back in Australia because they're on a different time zone. Mm. And then when I got up in the morning, first thing I heard from my sister and mum was already gone. You know? Oh, Tamara, I'm so sorry. It's such a, a very distressing story. And you want, I know you wanted to be there with her. I did, but at the same time, I had my own health problems and I had to put them first after that. First thing I did on the Monday was ring the doctors yeah. and I just went, you know what, I need help. I need to come in and see someone immediately. And we were just going, there was rumours going about we were just going to lockdown. So I managed to get an appointment and I lay down on the table and it was a female doctor thank god she felt my stomach she went yeah there's definitely something there she said I can feel it and it is large I went okay so I wasn't dreaming it and she sent me to um get a biopsy and then (laughs) um I went along and we were in full lockdown by that stage and I went into the area and everyone was in PPE I had, you know, do the hand sanitizer, the whole thing. I was the only patient allowed in to the waiting room and, you know, only one person at a time. And she took a biopsy, which was extremely uncomfortable. I mean, it's not nice. It's worse than a pap smear. Um, Did did she take the biopsy vaginally then? Yes, on the table there. Yeah, no pain relief or anything. Yeah. And it's, it doesn't hurt, but it's really uncomfortable um, because they use those, you know, the the silver, what's it called? They use dilators, don't they, to yeah. get through the cervix. That's really uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I think after you've been through childbirth, you don't mind so much things, you know, being worked on around that area, but that was really uncomfortable. Yeah, dilators are really, they're, oh, they're really something else. Yeah, I didn't enjoy that at all, but she also confirmed there was something there. And then a week later, she rang me at home and she said, Normally we would bring you in for this information, you know, for your results and things in person. But she said, obviously, because of COVID, we're trying not to bring people in if it's unnecessary. But she went, you know, we've looked at your blood results and I've basically she kind of stumbled there. She went, Tamara, you've got cancer. And I just knew it. I went, yeah, yeah, I've got cancer. I knew it. Yeah. Um, she confirmed your suspicions she did Mm -hmm. and they hadn't even operated at that stage she didn't need any more information to know that it was cancer did she go on to explain about what kind of cancer that she thought that you had yeah she didn't really know she didn't say ovarian Uh, she was because the lump was positioned right in the middle of my stomach Mm. She didn't know what it what it was. Um, she didn't know what it was attached to. So yeah, so she obviously sent me for I think it was a CT scan after that. Yeah. And I think because of the stress, then I put my back out and I couldn't drive. Oh. 
That's just how my body reacted. That's how I hold all my stress in my back. So my back went out and I couldn't drive. So I had to put the CT scan off three times. Anyway, I eventually got there and it was the CT scan process. It's not fun, but it's fine, you know, and you, you put your gown on and get the wee needle in your arm and they put the, the dye through and yeah. that's all fine. And the machine itself wasn't too intimidating. It was a bit of a novelty, really. I'd never done it before, but I know, you know, my mum used to talk about it and she hated it. Uh, so I knew what it involved. And, and then the, when they put the dye in, that you yeah. get that sort of, what? well, I don't know how to <laughs> explain it. Um, a sudden warmth in the nether regions <laughs> is what I would say. Well, the girl said to me, she said, it feels like you're going to, that you're peeing yourself. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's probably more accurate. And I just kind of went, oh, that's kind of weird. Yeah. And she was right. <laughs> and then I got the results and the team at Crosshouse Hospital brought me into the oncologist. And he said, we found a tumour. It's on your left ovary. He said it's 10 centimetres by 11 centimetres. And he said it's quite large and you need it out straight away. You know, we don't want to hesitate. He said COVID or no COVID, you're going ahead with surgery as soon as I can get you in there. Uh, So I had my surgery on the 28th of May um, and it was a full hysterectomy, which at my age, I don't mind that. I'd already had two children. You know, I was quite happy to ha- to be done with all that, to be honest. And I wanted to get rid of my periods. I didn't enjoy having them at all anymore. I didn't see any point in it. So they did the hysterectomy. And did you recover okay from the surgery? Because it is quite major surgery that you had. It, I actually didn't realise how debilitating it would be. And for how long afterwards I would actually need to recover. Because, I mean, we're talking, it's nearly 11 months now since I've had surgery. And I still feel exhausted a lot of the time. My scar is still healing. Uh, It's still pink in colour, whereas my sister said that you're not fully healed until that turns white, which I thought was really interesting. And... The months afterwards, it's not so much the terrible pain. It's the fact you can't stand up straight. Yeah. And I actually had to buy a wedge for my bed to lie on each night and and have a pillow each side of me so I wouldn't toss and turn all night. Mm -hmm. I had to just stay as straight as a board in that position the whole night long and sleep on my back. And I'd never slept like that before in my whole life. So... Mm -hmm. I mean, I did that for months on end. So there's did lots they, of did things. Did they do the surgery through a laparoscope or did they open up? Um... No, it was the big one. It wasn't keyhole or anything like that. So it was the proper surgery. So the scar goes from my belly button right down into my pubic region. Yeah. So it'd be about 10, 11 centimetres long. Yeah, so I didn't really realise how difficult it would be and I needed help from my two daughters when I wanted to go and take a shower every day Uh, I needed help to get undressed and they'd stay with me the whole time I was in the shower and then they'd help me get out Mm -hmm. because it was a shower bath so it's these things you don't think of Mm -hmm. 
getting in and out it was quite hard to lift my legs over and I was always terrified of falling absolutely terrified of falling and then they would help me get dressed as well which <laughs> totally grossed them out <laughs> they hated doing that and um, doing it though Oh, they were great. Yeah, they were, they were really good, time. you know, and they'd help me put my socks on and, you know, my, my undies and all that sort of stuff, but they just hated it. Yeah. Uh, it was quite funny, actually, and I'm like, oh, well, I used to do these things for you yeah. when you were younger, so <laughs> now it's your turn. <laughs> oh, I know you can laugh about it now. It's important to find some humour, isn't it? But I think, I think you have to. horrible. Yeah, I think you just, honestly, you just take the moments. I think I'm a different person now, definitely. And my whole life has changed as a result of the cancer. And COVID kind of pales off in in comparison to that. Yeah, it just made things more tricky from a logistic point of view, I think. But, um, yeah, it sort of does sort of fade into... um, you know, I suppose a nothingness with what you've been through um, in this very short space of time. You know, you can find good and bad in COVID. And I mean, I'm always conscious of the fact that there's just so many people out there who are just dying all around us. You know, so death has been a really big thing this year. And for a lot of people, they've had to think about everything that that entails. Mm. Um, for my sister she's you know a year down the line she's still trying to set on my mum's estate just now yeah and so much of that was put on hold you know it took her months to get the death certificate because they were just inundated with applications for death certificates yeah she, she you know it's taken us nearly a year to get her her property on the market to get it sold and at the same time my sister was left to deal with everything on her own and I just felt really, really bad for her. I haven't been able to do anything at all to help her. I'm literally nothing from here. She's done all of it. She's done most of the paperwork. She applied for the probate and everything else. Um, And the hardest part for her was actually going back to the house when it was empty and dealing with all the paperwork uh, that mum left behind and, Mum was, I think, in, she was in denial. Mm. Even though she'd had cats for such a long time, she didn't want to deal with any of it. And she only did her real, her real five days before she died. So I, knowing all of that, yeah. I did everything myself during lockdown. I took the opportunity when I was furloughed to get all of my affairs in order for mm-hmm. the sake of my children. So they didn't have to go through that. And I did ev- absolutely everything. I got my will done, my power of attorney. Mm-hmm. I got all my bank accounts in order. I wrote down absolutely everything, all the utilities, all the logins for my bank accounts. Mm-hmm. I chased up their trust fund information. I went back to Australia for to get my superannuation sorted out, all those type of things, my life insurance, the whole bit. And it took me six months to do it. But very important work that is best done by you. Yeah. Uh, Death admin is is incredibly difficult if you don't have the necessary information. But what you've done for the future Mm. is is something 
um, really remarkable that will help your daughters. Absolutely. It's so essential. And I couldn't stress it enough because, I mean, I want to organise, I want everything organised before I eventually go. You know, I want everything in place, even even down to the burial plot and the, you know, the, the funeral package. I want it all done and dusted and paid for. Mm. I don't want them to have to think about anything else other than getting in the car on the day, you know. Yeah. And I don't ever want them to be left wanting for money or, you know, I don't want them, we live in a council flat that's rented. So, you know, I've obviously been talking to the council about what happens to my children, you know, if if I'm the main leaseholder and does it automatically get transferred to them? Do they have to pay rent? What happens with council tax? All of that. It's just so important. Yeah. It is, it is. And I think what COVID has done with many people is it's it's kind of forced them into a situation of thinking about uncertainty and facing their own mortality. And it's yeah. got people having these conversations. But these conversations, although they're really difficult, they are essential. And I really do admire you for doing all all that you've done you know with with everything that you've been through and on top of it you've you've done all this you're an incredible lady thank you thank you I just um my kids are everything to me yeah you know they really are they always have been they might moan about me you know some of the careers that I've pursued in the past have been very a lot of public relations work you know and I'm often on the phone or I'm sitting on the computer and they'll complain about, you know, that they don't get enough attention or time with me. And that the good thing about lockdown is we've had lots of time together Mm -hmm. and that's been really important. So we've been doing lots of lovely things like cooking in the house and just sitting around chatting and talking all these things through. And Mm -hmm. I've been a hundred percent honest with them the whole time, like throughout Mm -hmm. the entire experience and you know they're old enough they're 15 and 17 so they're old enough to know that there may be a day in the future when they have to live without me and they needed to know how that happened and then what to expect and and eventually we'll have that conversation down the track about how they're going to cope with it yeah yeah How have they responded to the information you've given them? How have they coped? Both of my girls completely different. So my eldest is very happy to talk about most of it and she's found it quite helpful, I think. So it allowed her to process things quite quickly and um, she's a a confident, well-adjusted girl. So she's had really very few issues about it and she's taken it in her stride pretty much the same as I have my youngest daughter is quite quiet and a bit of an introvert so she's kind of buried her head in the sand a lot and not wanted to know about a lot of it even though it worried the hell out of her and what's really become obvious is she's been trying not to talk to me about any problems that she's having because she didn't want to worry me. Mm. So for a very long time, she didn't say anything about it. And I kept, I'd keep going into her room and sitting on a bed and I'd be like, you know, we need to talk. You need to tell me how you're feeling. Is there anything wrong? What do you think? And, you know, occasionally she'd just burst into tears. 
and so juggling the reactions of the family around me has been hard. Yeah. It's hard when you're a single parent and her dad, their dad's been around and he, this my my extended family, so it's his family because we live here in Scotland, they've been absolutely amazing. Yeah. And they they keep take, coming around, picking the kids up and taking them back to their house for, for tea or, you know, they'll take them for a quick run for an ice cream and they'll be sitting and chatting to them about things and, they, you know, they'll ring every, like, for ages, my mother-in-law, she's amazing, and she, for, for a long time there, she was ringing me every single day, sometimes two and three times a day. Like, she'd ring me and then she'd ring Chloe and then she'd ring Izzy, and we'd just be like, oh, my God. <laughs> she has honestly been so on it and so helpful, and she'll be like, okay, what do you need? Do you, do you need soup? Do you need milk? Do you need bread? You know, it's just absolutely incredible. She has been a godsend. Yeah. Uh, I didn't know what I would have done without her help. And I mean, she's the backbone of this massive family that we have here as well. And she's gone above and beyond, especially during COVID, you know, they're in their seventies. They're not supposed to be going out to the shops and picking up messages for me. And you know, sometimes they'll call another family member to come and help. So that's been the advantage of being part of a big family. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, you you perceived that this might happen and you know, you all those really hard decisions of moving yeah. from Oz to Scotland, it's it's really paid off, hasn't it? It really has. Port for your daughters now. Yeah. I wanted them to have the network that I mm. felt I never had when I was younger. Yeah. I had family, but they were spread all over the country. We'd never see them. And I had grandparents in Sydney that we would sometimes go every single weekend to visit. But, you know, obviously by that stage they were gone. It's hard to envisage what it's like unless you've been there, how vast the country is in, in Oz. <laughs> it's know. absolutely beautiful. You know, I definitely I miss it all the time and I dream about it all the time. Mm. I dream I'm back there doing, you know, hanging out with one of my best friends or, you know, it's really strange, and I, it's it's the sights and the sounds. Yeah, and like the smell. The, yeah, the yeah, because it it's it is it's so different, isn't it, over there? You know, it's the birds and the cicadas and all those mm. noises that you grew up with. You you just don't hear them anymore. Mm. Yeah, and being close to the coastline as well. Like, I was always near a beach growing up, and. Yeah always within five ten minutes I could walk to one all the time so I'm not I'm not I'm not living in that environment anymore like I'm out in the country here in Scotland and the beach is a good 15 20 minute drive away and the beaches are quite different here as well so um but you know I could often go to these beaches when I was growing up and I'd be the only one on the whole beach and you know it could be a mile or two long stunning white sand and I was really lucky to live in an area where we get a lot of dolphins. So yeah. often you'd go down and you would see them just playing out in the waves. Oh, you know, it was yeah. absolutely beautiful. Yeah, yeah. And with not being able to go back, there's no. Do you feel maybe that there's been no closure with losing your mum after she died? You, you've not been able to. Yeah. See, yeah. 
see her, see where she's been buried or, you know, there's so much that you've missed out on that would bring closure. Yeah, my sister was very fortunate. She was able to have a normal funeral. So a lot of mum's mum's family were able to attend. So that was good closure for her, I think, as much as it was really difficult. Whereas I got the photos of everything and we had the option to record the service, but I didn't want to watch a video of that. That was just too much for me. Mm-hmm. So I said no to that. But the offer was there and then mum was cremated. So we don't even have a plot that we can go and visit. And what's happened is that my sister had some of mum's ashes put into a wee urn to send over to me in Scotland so I can scatter them somewhere. But the the two urns are still sitting back in Australia. We can't send ashes at the moment because of COVID. So, yeah, one of the things I really, really want to do is be able to take mum's ashes somewhere where I know she would have loved to have visited in Scotland. Yeah, and I will sprinkle them. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. I will sprinkle them with the children, and then I'll feel like I'll have a little bit of her here as well. Yeah, and I guess that it's giving you a bit of time to get through your own issues with your own health as well. So when you do come to scatter the ashes, you can really focus on that. Yeah, and um, you know, I would like to have some of them made into a bear, and that bear, I want the two cancer ribbons so I want the pink one for the breast cancer and the teal one for my ovarian cancer so I'm going to get the two of them put on that and get a friend to make it for me that would be lovely yeah I think things like that are really important and we had the anniversary of mum's death last week so that was really hard as well because we're still in level four lockdown it's not like we could really drive out to the ocean and you know make a day of it and yeah, you're stationary, stationary in grief, aren't you, in, in many ways? Yeah, so I did the kind of nearest. I, I drove 10 miles up the road here, which I shouldn't have done, and I went out to a little place called Loudon Hill, and it's where William Wallace had his battle against the English. But it's the most stunning spot, and it was one of those days when you have this magnificent sunset in the background. Oh, wow. So, we, honestly, we stopped for 10 minutes, but just the fact that I made that effort to, to mark that day, it just meant a lot to me. And yeah. the two girls came in the car and it was freezing cold, so they didn't want to get out. But I just jumped out and took a couple of photos and I thought this is just for me and my mum. Yeah, that was very special. Very it's special. nice. You yeah. have to do these things. Yeah. You have to mark the important occasions because you, you don't know how many you're going to have. Yeah. Tamara, can we jump back to when you'd had your surgery? So you'd recovered. Obviously, it was very difficult with the major surgery that you'd had. Did they tell you what kind of cancer, what kind of ovarian cancer you had and at what stage you were? Yeah, it took about a week to get the results. They obviously sent it off for biopsy. So what happened is they told me I had clear cell carcinoma and I was stage 1C. Right. And I didn't really know a great deal, but a new stage 1 was good, you know, better than than, than a, a 2 or a 3. Mm. And um, I was very relieved, but also, you know, you don't really have it confirmed that you have cancer until you get that result. Mm. 
back mm-hmm. after surgery. They the, even even though the girls told me on the phone that I had it, they still didn't know hundred mm-hmm. percent until they go in there and they open you up and then they find what else is happening. And what is really interesting is that my 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 cyst burst during the surgery. So I mean, thank God I didn't fly to Australia with that. Oh yeah. And when it burst, obviously some of the cells they were worried, even though they did the peri- is it peritoneum wash? Yeah, peritoneal wash. Yeah, yeah, there you go. So even though they did that, they still wanted me to have the chemo because of the the because it burst during surgery. So yeah, you know, I, I just feel lucky to be alive, you know. Yeah. Um, and I, I'm lucky we caught it early, even though all the symptoms were there all that time. Yeah. You know, I had there was every indication, even when I was back when I was 25, you know, there was I'd had endometriosis apparently for years. Mm. And I was riddled with it, and I never knew that either. No. And they didn't know that until I was opened up in surgery. So that was another huge surprise and my bowels because of the endometriosis my bowels were attached to the ovary so they had to separate those so the surgery actually took longer than what they thought it would yeah and you know so all of that I mean geez it's the information is so hard to process afterwards yeah and you're thrust into surgical menopause as well aren't you suddenly and that is incredibly difficult to manage you know, I feel I've been lucky. You know, um, I had hot flushes the first few weeks, but mm. now, I mean, I might get a hot flush once or twice a week, and that's only if I have a glass of wine or some some sugar. Yeah, and yeah. I'm not getting hot flushes unless I make myself hot. Like if I go and have a really hot shower. I will get a hot flush for a good half an hour afterwards. Mm. So it's little things like that that have changed me. But what I'm doing is I'm taking the vitamins to try and help counteract a lot of that. So I'm taking, you know, the vitamin C and the magnesium and the calcium. Yes. I think that's helped an awful lot. Yeah. I'm really pleased that you don't have all those symptoms of the the menopause that you know surgical menopause can be so hard to manage I was expecting to be very harsh to be honest and I feel like I've come off quite lightly compared to a lot of other women I think one of the biggest issues that I've put on masses of weight after surgery so I've actually put on 22 kilos so I think that's going to be really hard to lose now that I am in menopause yeah just the case uh, of gradually do it isn't it you know don't don't go sort of hell to hell for leather and trying to do it just do it sensibly and slowly that's it i think yeah i think getting your fitness back after chemo i mean you know yourself chemo's a really rough process and i think in a lot of ways it's actually worse than the surgery yeah how um, long after the surgery did you have chemotherapy uh, the surgery is at the end of May and I started chemo in the middle of July. Right. And that's purely because I didn't feel well enough. Yeah. I didn't feel up to it. I couldn't I couldn't even get down the stairs, let alone sit in a car yeah. and then 
sit in a waiting room for two hours or whatever. I just I couldn't face going to the beats and to be honest. Mm-hmm. I just really wasn't up to that at all. And the thought of putting a car seat on, uh, like a car seatbelt on around me yeah. terrified me. You know, I was terrified of being in an accident and mm-hmm. that going against my stomach. I really just, it was hard. It's yeah. not easy at all. No, it's not. What chemo did you have? I started off with paclitaxel and the carboplatin, but the first... So the first day I was in from 9am to 4pm. So it was a very grueling, long, very long day. When I got home, my temperature hit the roof and I had to go to A&E and sit in there for like three or four hours until they eventually set me home. And then I had every single symptom under the sun. So I, I had a very upset tummy, you know, they had diarrhea, the aches and pains, my fever was still up and then I ended up getting a horrific chemo rash. Mm-hmm. So then I had to get NHS 24 around to the house to give me something for that because I just woke up with it after one day and it was my whole face, you know, it was really, really itchy and just horrible, such mm-hmm. a bad reaction. So because of all of that and that went on for like two to three weeks, they just said, look, this is too um, toxic for you. So they took me off the paclitaxel and just left me on carbo for the remaining five treatments and they all went a dream. I had no reactions at all really to any of that Um, (laughs) and each each visit was literally only an hour and a half. Yeah. Massive difference. It's the combination, isn't it, that takes up the whole day. (laughs) Or just, um, I mean, it's just... I mean, it's hard enough to sit for that period of time because I'm used to jumping up and down all day, you know, and and I can't sit for very long. My, my, my legs get really uncomfortable. Like I yeah. seem to have that restless leg syndrome now. Yes. Um, so to actually ha- be hooked up to an IV the whole day, I mean, I just kept getting off the chair and having to stand and stretch. I mean, mm. I don't know how people do it. I really don't. It's, it's a lot to contend with. I mean, they're lovely places. They're so friendly, aren't they? The nurses are so amazing and putting you at ease and explaining everything. And they're very gentle. Yeah. um, I mean, there are some things that will always stick in my mind that have been different because of COVID. And one of those is the fact that with the hospital transport, it's, it's supplied by Ayrshire Cancer Support here. Normally they take three to four patients in their car for each run, but they were restricted to only one person at a time. So that put a massive strain on their resources and the drivers would always have their masks on and I'd have to sit in the back. So kind of with the two of us with masks on, it would be hard to chat to them. And all of the chairs were spaced out in the beats in. So you were kind of, you had to be two or three metres from the next chair. So talking to each other was really quite difficult as well because you didn't want to be shouting across Mm -hmm. the room to other folk, particularly if they were feeling quite bad. Mm -hmm. And then also all of those complementary therapies that you normally have like massage and aromatherapy and, you know, clinical meetings where you you could sit down with other patients and have a good chat with a counsellor and all of that went by the wayside. 
there was none of that at all. So you're very much aware of the fact that you were always on your own, just going in and out of these different environments and going to and from the treatment. You're always on your own. Mm. And if you go into a waiting room, you'd be on your own. So the experience because of COVID has been quite different for you then? Well, yes. And I I don't know how it would have felt if I'd been, you know, if if times had been in, in normal because maybe I would have found having all those crowds and things overwhelming, Mm. you know, walking into a busy waiting room, I I might've had another panic attack. You just never know. Yeah. So it has been very different. And what was really one thing that always stick in my mind is the fact that the day I had the operation, when I came out and I was lying in my bed, I could hardly move. And it was the last night of the NHS clap. So suddenly everyone erupted into this thunderous applause and I could hear people cheering and clapping and I could hear them outside the window where the ambulance bay was and there was people outside, out in the street, you know, all of them. Mm-hmm. It's just this thunderous applause and, and uh, it was amazing. And mm-hmm. But all I could do was just lie there. I couldn't even sit up to have a look around. And I was the only, I had a, a, a single room. So it's not even like there are any other patients to chat to that were lying next to me. No, it's just, wow, such a different experience entirely, isn't it? Absolutely. How How many cycles of chemotherapy did you have, Tamara? I only had the six altogether. Yeah. And finished in the November, beginning of November. One of them got put back because my bloods were... I just wasn't strong enough that week. I think it might have been my white, my white blood cell count was yeah. too low. Yeah. And you know it yourself. You know when you're not right to go and get the chemo that day or, you know, you know because you're just so completely drained. Yeah. You really do feel the fact that you have no immune system in place. Yeah. You see, by, by that, by you know, usually the fifth and sixth are the worst because you've had that cumulative effect of chemotherapy. Mm-hmm. So you do, you recover, but not quite as, an, as much as you did previously. And it really makes your bloods take a, a, a hit as well. Oh, yeah. Especially and you do. Your neutrophils and your, and your, um, your platelets and your hemoglobin. Yeah. The biggest problem for me was the neuropathy. Yeah. And they cut back my dose as well because, you know, my feet were in absolute agony with it. Yeah. Um, and towards the end, I mean, it was hard to stand for more than 20 minutes at a time. Yeah. My feet were just so incredibly sore. And, you know, even to go and take a shower, you do think twice about it. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, walking anywhere you'd have to get really comfortable shoes on as well for the days that I knew I had to go up to the beats and because I'd have to walk a good 150 metres. So it's all the things you take for granted. Yeah. So they modified the dose for you a little then. Yeah. And did you have your chemotherapy through a cannula or did they put in a pick line or a port or anything? Yeah, no, just the cannula. Um, And that's never fun, is it? Because on a cold day... You can't see the veins in your hand very well. And they put it in the hand. I always thought they'd put it in my elbow, you know, like mm-hmm. um, my inner elbow. But, no, they say that those veins are too big, so they don't put 
put it in there because if you're going to have a bad reaction, it'll go in too quickly. So that's why they do it through your hand. And I thought that was fascinating. But when you were getting up and it was like minus one and things in Scotland and you were going in that day, they couldn't get a vein to yeah. put the cannula into. So, um, I mean, I just felt like a pin cushion, you know, and sometimes they try like three or four times and, I mean, I've had it all over and once they had it in, in the cushiony part at the back of your hand, yeah. oh, and that was the most painful spot that I had. Yeah. And then you'd always get the bruising afterwards. So, you know, I'm a bit, I'm a bit of a bleeder. So I would always kind of, after they remove the cannula, that's really horrible as well. So mm. I'd always kind of press that because I'd just get terrible bruising from it. Yeah. And it's yeah. painful. Even just having the cannula inserted can be just, um, you know, a, a major trauma, even before you have the chemotherapy. It is. I would, I would definitely get antsy before I went up there. I was always um, anxious, you know, always anxious for 24 hours before every chemo. You know, my kids would know not to come near me because I was just a bit nippy and just on edge and, you know, I kind of always expected them to try a different, some, a few different locations. And one day I had a young trainee and it kind of spurted out. The blood kind of hit hit the trolley, I think it was, and I just went, oh, my God. <laughs> you know, if you're not good with needles, that is just horrific. It's just all those little things. And But what I've done is I've tried to document a lot of this with photographers as I went along. Mm -hmm. And that used to keep my mind off what was ha really happening because, you know, I'd sit there and I'd take a photograph of the cannula in my hand or I'd take a wee video of the medicine going through the tubes. And, I mean, I was really aware of the fact that back in Australia you, you, you usually have to pay for chemotherapy treatment. Mm -hmm. So my mum was paying $600 a month. But in some of these forums that you go into on Facebook, these poor American women are talking like $10,000 a treatment. I know. I know. It makes us feel very, very lucky. Yeah. I mean, I was aware how, yeah, I was so aware of how lucky I was to be getting this medicine. And, I mean, I can't even imagine the choice you'd have to make if your life is on the line like that. And then suddenly they're saying to you $10,000 for every chemotherapy treatment. And then what happens if you can't afford that? Yeah. You know, you have to just go without, even though you need you need it to yeah, live. It's quite frightening, isn't it, to think that there's there's an inequity depending on what you can afford. It is so wrong. It's just so un it's just so unfair. Yeah. Um, but you know, I also had friends back in Australia that didn't want me to have the chemotherapy. Mm. They thought that it was poison. I was poisoning my system because they you know they have this holistic approach to their life but you know I just thought why wouldn't you why wouldn't Did you, you feel pressured into not having the chemo because of no. what they were saying no not at all I don't let anyone pressure me in any part of my life so I just find other people's opinions very interesting and but no, and I, I always question my choices, certainly if mm. someone doesn't agree with what I'm doing, but I always make my own decisions in my mm. life. You have to. Yeah. You have to own them. 
there's a lot of research gone into chemotherapy so you know it's it, it's important that we we go with with what we know works we can't there's so many chances with ovarian cancer there are so many different types these days yeah. you know yeah. and one of the orderlies in the in the ward was saying that years ago everyone used to have the same chemotherapy yeah. no matter what but in the 30 years that he's been working in this field as a cancer nurse, he knows that, you know, the way things are now, they're incredible. There's just so many different combinations. And there's so many trials and there's so many different drugs out there and there's so many different types of different cancers. And, I mean, we really are very lucky that, we, that we're in this day and age where we can have those treatments available to us. Yeah, I've seen that in my career too, you know, over 30 years to begin with as a student nurse and I, I noticed you know that if anybody had a, a diagnosis of cancer it was all very hush hush oh, I've got cancer they won't have long oh. and all that kind of talk but you know by the by the end of my career people lived a long time with cancer and actually can, a lot of cancers become a chronic more of a chronic illness in the fact that people are living with that particular yes. cancer for a long time. So, so treatments are so much better. So how do you feel like you were on the one side of it and then you became a patient knowing all of that background and having treated so many people? So how did you kind of, did that make it worse? Did it make it better? In the beginning, it helped a lot because it was familiar to me, the um, the the technology, the jargon, the consultants were all people I knew. The CNSs were all people; they were my peers because obviously I was a CNS as well in palliative care. And so, to begin with, going to the hospital was familiar. It didn't feel scary to me because I knew hospitals. Like, yeah, that's what I. That's my career. You yeah. Know? So that was what it was like to begin with. Now. It's no longer a blessing, but it's a bit of a curse because I'm palliative. I know all the things that can go wrong. And yeah. so all the, the, the things that happen to me, like the symptoms, I'm thinking, I wonder if that's liver mets. Oh, I wonder if I've got brain mets. I wonder if I've got bone mets. I wonder yeah. if I'm going into obstruction. You know, the, these conversations are constantly going through my mind. So now i i don't see it as a blessing i see it more as a curse in some ways yeah it's almost um, too much information isn't it really yeah, you can know too much sometimes ignorance is bliss it helped to begin with though tamara um you know whereas it it felt to me well, i think that's the other thing is that i felt also that uh, when i was talking about myself it sounded as if i was talking about a patient another patient so yeah. I'd be quite detached and I'd yes. be talking to my oncologist and I'd be asking all sorts of questions as if I was talking about another person but it was Gee. me yeah it was quite strange really yeah, yeah that's, that's see that again that's really hard to imagine mm. but again like you I had people a lot of people sending me um, different treatments I could could try that was mm -hmm. nothing to do with chemotherapy and some of them were quite wacky yeah. and I thought 
why would I go for something like that when I worked <laughs> as a nurse? A prof- you know, my profession is in nursing. It's a medical career. Why am I going to go for some wacky treatment like that? Yeah. I put my trust in the medical profession. Yes, I think that there are complementary therapies and some alternative therapies that you can have alongside medicine, modern medicine, but I'm not going to do that instead of medicine. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, the only other one that I probably want to pursue if there were no other alternatives is the mistletoe. Yes. Yeah. Therapy. I think that. Yeah. Yeah. And it is expensive. You know, I've looked at it already. Um, Obviously that conversation about what happens next is always that uncertainty about when is it going to come back? You know, that's that's a conversation I'm always having that's going around and around in my own mind. Mm. The thing is you never know. No. You, know? you don't know and I don't think you can dwell on it. No. I think you've got to look at life as being that gift is once you've got through your treatment you're recovering still at the moment because you've said that you have fatigue to get and your energy levels you know I think you've got to you've got to take life for what it is and live it as best that you can with whatever limitations that you've got Um, make the most of life because the fact is is that you've had a serious disease that's been treated you've been you've had surgery you've been treated and so now you've got a chance to really live your life yeah. and do things and make the most of it. Yeah, I mean, I definitely think about the future. I feel well prepared for it, no matter what happens now. And I think that's that's definitely a confidence booster for a start because I know everything's in order. I know what will happen to the children. I know what will happen to my house when I eventually buy one. So I think that helps a lot. And because we're in a new year now, I kind of, I started saying to everyone, oh, that was last year. (laughs) That was last year. I had a terrible year. (laughs) You know, it was really awful. But this year I'm over and done with now. You know, I've I've had my NED. I had my final scan at the end there. Okay, it was clear, but I don't 100% trust that. I still feel there's something something there, mm-hmm. something niggly somewhere that's going to pop its head up one day mm-hmm. and I'll get a recurrence. And I mm-hmm. I definitely feel that. And my mum had two recurrences before it finally, you know, um, ended her life. And that's really sad because, mm-hmm. but she had 24 years, yeah. you know, and that's the way she was living on borrowed time, but she was lucky to have that. Yeah. And there are people that don't have that. They don't have those 24 years, 25 years. So, I mean, if I get as long as that, then I'll be, I'll consider myself extremely lucky, really. Even and, with occurrences, you see, there is still so many treatments that are available. That absolutely. They so. I think you can live for a very long time with cancer in your mm. body. And I don't think it'll ever be easy. And there's a lady that I know that's just on her third recurrence. And she, She's a little bit older than me. She started off with breast cancer and then she ended up with ovarian. So unfortunately she's had that double whammy and now she's been she's she's been diagnosed yet again and she's not that far on from the last recurrence. Yeah. 
So she's just, you know, even for her, she's just trying to get her head around that and deal with that in talking to her own family. And I think that knowing other women that are going through that now, it makes you really sad. Mm. You You just feel so sorry for them. But at the same time, you think, thank God that's not me right now. Yeah, it's really hard, isn't it? I think you build relationships, you find your tribe. Libby in episode one described you have to find your tribe and we find our tribe. But then, of course, there are ladies that are in different at different stages of of their disease. And so you're always looking at a loss situation Um, and that it it then makes you stop and think about your own mortality and having to constantly face that. Yeah, I mean, I've kind of, now that I've dealt with it and moved on, I almost don't want to think about it any longer. And even my daughter said, oh, mum, you need to stop talking about it to people because you're going to become the cancer lady. And I kind of went, is I'm I'm already that, Mm. you know, and that's a conversation we just had yesterday for International Women's Day. Mm. And And I went, is I'm already that. I'm already the cancer lady. That's going to be part of my life now. And she's like, yeah, but you don't have to keep talking about it with everyone. I went, I said, look, there'll be a stage where I won't feel the need to do that. Mm. I just said to her, look, at the moment, you know, I've been approached by journalists to share my story and things, and they're coming to me. It's not the other way around. Mm -hmm. But I said to her, you've got to understand that we're in the middle of COVID and it's kind of a slow news day anyway for them. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so, I, and I said the fact that I'm actually posting about these things on on Facebook and things you know they're gonna jump on a story like that but there'll come a day when the world goes back to normal so they say and there'll be a lot lots of people out there who are far more interesting than me you know well, I think what you're doing you see you've got you've got a big heart and I think that what you're doing is is brilliant in raising awareness about talking about it while you can yeah yes okay you might come to a day where you no longer want to do that but it's very valuable the work that you're doing right now in raising awareness because when women are first diagnosed they're seeking people like you and I out Um, yeah hope and they want to know what treatment's like and what you go through and they want to know how long you've been living with yeah. it. Yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, obviously the first resource we always go to for information is Google. And a lot of people say, oh, my God, don't look at Google. It'll, you know, you'll hate the information and it'll, it'll just make you worry and you'll be terrified. And, okay, there's a wee bit of that. But to be honest, you just look for the information that you think is meaningful to you. Yeah. And obviously the factual information for ovarian cancer, I mean, it's pretty harsh, isn't it? And, you know, I read all the things about only 50% of women survive with this disease. The clear cell that I have is also aggressive and it's one of the rarer types of cancer. So maybe the treatment that I received isn't specifically targeted towards this just yet because they don't have the, the technology to develop um, an ovarian specific vaccine or treatment, whatever. So with all of that in mind, you just kind of hope that you're one of the, the statistics that are, you know, that lives beyond that three to five year period. 
Yeah, there's so many factors that come into prognosis. It's impossible to say. I mean, the statistics are just that. Um, who knows if they look at the statistics in the next five years, that could change quite a lot, really. Um, yeah, I mean, they've had some great breakthrough drugs. Yeah. And what is it? A, a, what's the new one that's out in Scotland? A current? Yeah. A laparib, yeah. Yeah, yeah. they're having fantastic results with that. That's right, yeah. Um, yeah. And that's an amazing breakthrough apparently. So it's good to know there's a bit of light at the end of the tunnel as well, yeah. you know, if we do have a recurrence. Um, the other thing is that I was approached by a lady called Mary Hudson who was running a wee Zoom group through Maggie's in Lanarkshire and she approached me to see if I wanted to help, you know, promote the symptoms and things of with ovarian cancer. So we've set up a Facebook group, you know, which we've invited you to be part of now, which is yeah. called Scottish Ovarian Cancer Support Group. And she felt that there, when she was originally diagnosed with ovarian cancer, there was nowhere she could go to for information or support because it is one of the lesser known diseases and she said she was searching absolutely everywhere for some kind of network based in Scotland that was specific to ovarian cancer and she couldn't find anything mm. and that was only like a couple of years ago and by luck she kind of chanced across the Maggie's group mm. so we've we've created that and we've already got 50 members in six short weeks yeah that is incredible yeah. You know, so the need was there and we have the Zoom meeting twice a month and we invite everyone in the group to come on there and a lot of these women are being treated at the same hospitals. Mm -hmm. so, so I can really see some massive benefits in that already and because I'd been so alone through my journey, being invited suddenly into a group of ladies that all had the same symptoms as me was actually amazing. And I didn't realise how much I'd been missing that rapport mm -hmm. and particularly with people who'd been through something similar. So mm -hmm. I found that a really healing, like I got off the first Zoom call and I was like, oh, my God, I just felt so much better. I just felt like I was part of something. Yeah, and it's important, isn't it? Because nobody can know what it's like unless you've been there yourself. Yeah, I realised that the the company of these other women had was so important. Yeah. It really did change a lot for me, to be honest. Going back to chemo just quickly, um, we didn't mention about whether you lost your hair. Um, yeah, you look. Tamara? I did, but I totally embraced that process. It really didn't bother me, you know. Why oh, you didn't mention it then? <laughs> no, that's why. It, I just, honestly, it was horrible because, you know, I know I'd seen my mum lose her hair and, she, you know, I knew there were wigs available and there's a, a, a girl in my village who does them and she specialises in that now. She's been doing it in, for years and raising money for cancer for years. So I was really fortunate. She was able to come to my front door and bring me a wig that she thought would suit my hairstyle. And the thing is she'd actually also been my hairdresser for years. So she knew exactly what kind of wig to get me. So she dropped off, I think it was two or three different ones for me to choose from. 
And I tried all of those on and then I just kept one of them and gave the other two back. And I didn't have to pay for them because she would just got, she, she'd been doing it for years and I just used an NHS voucher mm. to pay for it. And it was yeah. a very simple process. So I had that before I lost my hair. And I'd also bought all these wee hats and things and scarves, and just a variety of different things. So I was all prepared. And then three weeks after the first treatment, my hair started coming out and it was coming out in lumps. So what I wasn't prepared for is extremely painful. Yeah. And I'd, I'd heard someone explain it as a thousand different needles sticking into your scalp and it definitely feels like that. And I had this. It for me too. I had this. Oh, and to even touch the top of your head was so painful. So I started just pulling my hair out while I was in the shower and I just pull out bunches at a time. And then because we we're in lockdown, I just went and got the, the clippers I use for the pets and I just shaved my entire head that night. <laughs> the next day, you know, like I just shaved everything off and I got my daughter to help me with it. And I just hung my head over the bath and took it all off. And then after that, all that came out was all these tiny spikes. Yeah. But I had to wear a hat to bed every night to catch the spikes so I wouldn't be breathing them in mm -hmm. and they wouldn't be, you know, going all over my pillow and my yeah. bed sheets. Yeah. yeah. It's not fun. No, it's it's quite a strange feeling, isn't it? Yeah. When the hair, It's like each hair follicle hurts. Yes. Oh, and then you've got agony. no hair weighting you down. Yeah. Um, that is such a relief. Yeah, the, um, my head was definitely cold sleeping in the bed after that. I had to wear a hat to bed every night. So, you know, I had to find something that was a bit comfortable, one of those nice little chemo caps, yeah. um, a little cotton, soft cotton one. And then I didn't lose absolutely all of my hair. Like I had a really fine covering left. Yeah. But, um, I mean, I, I did look very bald. Um but, I, you know, I just took photos of myself, like selfies, and I put them up on Facebook. Yeah. You know, I just wasn't afraid of it at all. I wasn't afraid of being judged for looking ugly or because I, I didn't really care. You know, I just kind of went, okay, here's, here's what I look like now. This is this is me after the shave and this is me once I'm bald and, you know, queries and stuff would come to the door and I'd forgot, I'd forget to put my cap on. Yeah. <laughs> so I'd just yeah. answer the door with this baldy head. I was kind of glad I didn't have to go to work through that, though. Yeah, it's, I it's think, one less thing to think about, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, I think if I'd had to go to work wearing caps or my wig, I would have been very self-conscious of it. Yeah. But the fact that I didn't have to leave the house, no, it didn't bother me at all. Mm. And one of my daughters, she just refused to look at me for the first few weeks. Oh. <laughs> oh. Oh. She's like, nah, nah, nah. <laughs> she just couldn't cope at all oh bless her oh. I think it's been it's been so lovely to talk to you you've been so open and I, I just well feel so sad for you with everything that you've been through on top of your diagnosis as well yeah look it is a sad story but you know I've processed it I've dealt with it you know it's kind of one of those things like what is it I've got the t-shirt been there got the t-shirt I don't mind talking about it because I don't feel overly upset about it anymore and I've just moved on yeah yeah um 
it's just one of those things that's happened now and uh, yeah it was absolutely awful but I'm lucky I'm able to move on yeah you know I'm lucky that I can leave that behind for the time being I don't think that's forever but I just got straight back into my work you know I've taken on new responsibilities um been getting that word out there that other women should always check their symptoms first and not presume that it's menopause yeah quite happy really yeah no you've been amazing well we've got some light-hearted questions now you'll be pleased to know yeah <laughs> just, just some fun questions so what song would be your signature tune for your life you know, I was actually thinking about what song that I would actually pl- want played at my funeral. <laughs> so that's not lighthearted. But, you know, the one that kept coming back to me was The Rose. But Because yeah. I love, I've always loved that song and I always wanted that played at my funeral. But when I went and looked at the lyrics a few weeks ago, it's about this poor woman that died, I think, of a drug overdose. And I kind of <laughs> went, I was like, oh, no, <laughs> I can't be having that. So, yeah, yeah. Um, I don't I haven't actually chosen a substitute yet no no oh well there's plenty of time for that <laughs> yeah w- watch this space yeah. so yeah I, I can't pick one to be honest yet, okay. just yet and what do you want to be remembered for the legacy I want to leave behind is that I was I had compassion and I was always as kind as I could possibly be and I think you're only in a position to be able to do that when you yourself are comfortable. So I had a lot of trial and tribulation and now I feel all of that's behind, like, and I left all that behind kind of a few years back. So I I just want people to remember me as a good person. Um, I'm sure they're going to. Yeah. Yeah. Um, What was the last book you read or is there a book that you would recommend everybody reads? You know, when I was young, I went through a lot of therapy and the most helpful book I ever read was when I was probably in my early 20s and it was a book by a lady called Robin Norwood and it's called Women Who Love Too Much. Mm. So... That was the most important book I've ever read in my entire life. It's not what I'm reading now, but that helped me on a journey to self-discovery. And when I read that book, I actually cried for three days straight. And I kind of had a troubled childhood and that helped me to turn my life around because the track that I was on back in those days, you know, I may not have lived very long at all. Um, I was quite, kind of wild in my youth. So as a result of that, I actually went into therapy for three years and processed quite a lot of childhood trauma. Mm. And, yeah, so I, I always attribute that book to saving my life. Oh, so a very poignant book. Yeah, definitely. So these days I go I go for something a little bit more lighthearted when I do read. I, I tend to try and teach myself something new. So the latest book that I've got is actually about social media um, and it's a couple of guys that actually do that for a job and they're absolute experts in their field. Mm-hmm. And because I do that for a living, I'm hoping to learn from what they do and put that puts yeah put some of that into action throughout this coming year 
Oh, brilliant. And lastly, where in the world would you say is an absolute must to, to visit in a lifetime? Fiji. Because I've been there five times and I was really lucky. I worked for a resort there in my 20s and I got to be, I, I was flown over every single year to, to go and visit a variety of different resorts and it truly is heaven on earth. You know, pure, pure white sand, the most perfect, beautiful seashells as you walk along these beaches and the palm trees and lying in a hammock. You know, that is my idea of heaven. And if I had a choice, I would live there forever. Oh, that sounds amazing. Honestly, it's stunning. Pure, beautiful, um, crystal clear water. Oh, it's amazing. Oh, yeah. I've got a lovely picture in my head then. Yeah. Oh. Yeah, stunning. Well, it really is. Well, thank you, Tamara. Thank you so much for spending so much time and energy talking to me. So I'll catch up again then on Facebook. Okay, bye for now then. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening today. To hear future episodes of this podcast, please go ahead and subscribe now. I look forward to sharing more inspiring conversations with women who are living with ovarian cancer. Until next time, take care of yourselves and each other and enjoy all that life has to offer.